I'm Jeff Salzman. Welcome to another episode of This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at the progressive paper of record. And this is my fourth episode I've been doing every Friday. And it's fun because there's just so much to look at. Uh, and in some ways, I get liberated by just focusing on the New York Times for this show, although I pull from all different sources. But to see how you know, the news media, which is really us, you know, it's, it's the lower left and lower right quadrants. It's the collective um, interiors and you know, technological exteriors of where we are in human development. And we are continuing to grow and evolve and it's fun and fruitful to point that out. That's what I'm doing here. So today I'm gonna to focus on two articles that uh, were written by two of the people on the New York Times that I think actually are post-progressive at heart. I don't, I'm not sure they would identify themselves as such, but they're post-green uh, in, in this way. And who I'm talking about is Brett Stevens and Ross Douthit. And these are two of the so-called conservative columnists on the New York Times. Another one is David Brooks, and there are others. And they're conservative in sort of the classic liberal sense. They're not Trumpers, they were all anti-Trump. And, um, but they make an argument from the so-called right. And having an adequate sort of residency altitude in greens, because they're all sensitive and sophisticated and cool and they understand the, the, the liberal arguments. Uh, that they that they wanted that they, that they feel that there's something that needs to be said that needs to be filled in that needs to be added is itself kind of an integral impulse, and this is kind of where the edge of of development is in, in a sense and at the leading edge in the developed world. So I like these guys. I pay attention to them, and uh, the first one I'm going to look at is Brett Stevens' article. And hang on here, let me get back to my notes. And it, it's on Afghanistan. And Ross Douthat hasn't opined on Afghanistan as of yet, this is Friday the 20th. But uh, he has put out a couple tweets that imply that he's, he talked about that the, the strategy, I'm sorry, the, the tactic, that is the evacuation, that it failed so miserably is uh, uh, evidence that the strategy, which is to get the heck out of there, is the right one. So that's Ross Douthat. And uh, Brett Stevens has a very different view. He's very much, we should have stayed kind of guy. And I, I don't wanna do a whole lot on uh, my views on Afghanistan. I just put out a podcast on the Daily Evolver called The Case for Leaving and the Case for Staying, because I think Integral can, come down on both sides of that. Uh, but at any rate, they came down on either side. And you know, that's, there's a lot of disagreement on fundamental issues among people who self-identify as integral. Uh, I have to say more and more, I'm getting that. And uh, you know, I think it's the nature of the uh, ever more complex world and, uh, and, and ever more, a world ever more saturated with, with information that we can just it sort of naturally crystallizes around our biases and our personality types. And, you know, Integral helps us to see all of this. 
So anyway, I do want to share what um, Brett Stevens wrote, because I think it's also emblematic of how the New York Times covered this. Uh, and in the mainstream media in general, the consensus was, well, you see people hanging off the airplanes, that th this has gone terribly wrong. And, um, and then, of course, the, the, the focus and the very the New York Times is very much focused on the people who have been left behind and the geopolitical ramifications. And I'm looking right now at the current front page of the digital edition of the New York Times. Desperation builds at Kabul airport. Thousands of Afghan soldiers and security off officials are now on the run, hiding and hunted by the Taliban. What is Sharia law? And what does it mean for Afghan women under the Taliban? Videos show babies and children caught in the melee outside Kabul's airport. And this goes on and on and on. And this has for days. This is just a moment in time here. So Brett Stevens is, you know, one of the classic liberal intellectual leaders of that sort of classic liberal movement in general. But he's, he's highly esteemed here in the New York Times. And, um, and here's what he wrote. This is a, a pretty significant column. This was on Tuesday, so a few days ago. Biden owns the moment. He will also own the consequences. And his uh, summation is, you know, it's the one I talked about in the podcast I did, that the, the argument for staying is it actually costs so little uh, in the scheme of things to keep a lid on. And was it worth it? And, and how does one, I mean, how do we deal with in general, the sort of situation that we can plot on the spiral where we have the Taliban who are literally holy warriors. So warrior stage of development red, also uh, traditional, so holy, and that's the blue or amber depending on your system. And so they're, taking over a, a, a system that had a modern skin on it that was sort of imposed and sort of grew out of the culture in, in, in Afghanistan and they're truly modern people. Uh, but they made the calculation that it wasn't worth fighting the holy warriors and basically laid down their arms. And so that's the situation we're in. And uh, the, the question is, how bad is the Taliban going to be? Because the Taliban of pre-2001 was pretty bad. And, uh, you know, I got into that too. And, and this, is, this is basically where um, uh, Stevens is coming from. He makes the point that the killing won't stop. Women will become chattel. These are his subheads. Afghanistan will become a magnet to jihadists everywhere. What happens in Afghanistan won't stay there. And America's geopolitical positions will be gravely damaged. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the last, this is, will be a minute or so of from his last couple paragraphs. And he's sort of making these arguments back and forth in his head. But didn't we have to leave Afghanistan sometime? So goes the counter argument. Yes, though we've been to, in Korea for 71 years at far higher cost and the world is better off for it. But wasn't the Afghan government corrupt and inept? Yes, 
but at least that government wasn't massacring its own citizens or raising the banner of jihad. But aren't American casualties unacceptable? They are surely tragic, but so is squandering the sacrifice of so many Americans who fought the Taliban bravely and nobly, and as it turns out, for nothing. But is there a re any reason we should care more about the fate of Afghans than we do of desperate people everywhere? Yes, because our inability to help everyone everywhere doesn't relieve us of the obligation to help someone somewhere. And because America's power and reputation in the world are also functions of being a beacon of confidence and hope. Now these arguments belong in the past. The war in Afghanistan isn't just over, it's lost. A few Americans may cheer the humiliation and many will shrug at it. Will shrug at it. Uh, but the consequences of defeat are rarely benign for nations, no matter how powerful they otherwise appear to be. America's enemies, great and small, will draw conclusions from our needless surrender, just as they will about the frightening, oblivious president who brought it about. So that's a pretty scathing critique of, you know, the left standard bearer, Joe Biden. And um, I wouldn't disagree with it. And I, um, but I, I do sense that it doesn't take into account the kind of moving system that I think evolution requires. And that, you know, the Taliban's evolved, the world's evolved. There's another 20 years of skin, uh, modern. Um, I, I don't know. I, it's certainly not going to be pretty. Uh, but um, this is, um, you know, we're going to keep up to the minute on all of it, of course. Right, right. Okay. All right. So the next thing I wanted to get into is uh, story number two. And this is the last one. And it, it, this is a significant one. And this is from Ross Douthat, the other sort of post-progressive uh, I would identify in the New York Times. And Ross Douthat wrote an article on Sunday that is very much what I've been talking about on the Daily Balber for a long time. And that is how to think your way into religious belief. I love it. Love that title. How to think your way into religious belief. And so, you know, we, we, what, what I think he's doing here is he is providing a post-progressive path out of atheism. He is a Catholic. Um, he believes in, in that the Church of St. Peter, you know, that has a direct descendancy from Jesus, is the mother church. And he's kind of just going with it. And here he describes how uh, science and modernity actually support these beliefs. And I, you know, if we talk about this spiral of development, you know, we have the uh, holy warriors, you know, and then we have people who get modern who they might have a certain religious heart, but they can't really, uh, you know, uh, jibe it with um, modern secular rationality, and they sort of have a tension around that. And then people who just lose it, you know, it becomes an art form at best. 
And, um, and this is where a lot of the culture is. The, 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 in, in the integral world, we sometimes identify it as the people who are um, spiritual but not religious. And that is the, you know, sort of a shorthand for green spirituality in general or postmodern spirituality. So this is what's coming out of that, in my opinion. And that is something that is spiritual and religious. You know, that there actually is a religious impulse in reality. I'll let him describe it because I think he does it really beautifully. I love this essay. So he starts with, well, he starts with a bunch of stuff, but I'm just, it's a long article. I'm just going to hit the high points. He says, the new atheist philosopher, Daniel Dennett, we talk about a good bit, once wrote a book called Breaking the Spell, whose title implies that religious faith pre prevents believers from seeing the world clearly. And that's how, you know, that, that, that was how I thought for most of my adult life that religious belief was actually a, a, a delusion or a, a, a distortion of reality. And the, you know, the spell was broken for me, why can't it be for everybody else though anyway? So he says, but what if atheism is the spell? I love that. Um, so uh, that, okay, what if atheism is, is the spell that's been cast over modern minds and the fastest way to become religious is to break that spell? How about that? Love it. So let's try. Imagine yourself back in time to an era, ancient, medieval, pre-Darwin, pre when you think it made sense for an intelligent person to believe in God. Because religious ideas seem to provide an explanation for the more important features of reality. And I think that's just as beautiful an integral project as there is. That is to take ourselves back in time to the world before science explained everything. You know, last night I was at a friend's. We had this majestic view of the mountains, a full rainbow, and I have never seen a rainbow that vivid. And how, it, it, I, I naturally at this point do a practice where I just, I have no explanation for it. I don't see that it's water vapor and prisms and all that stuff. It's just there, you know? And how could a pre-modern mind experience something like that, that without some numinous explanation, something about reality that is beyond the, the rainbow itself? So that's what he's talking about here. Okay, all right. Okay, so he says, we want to entertain the idea that the universe was created with intent, intelligence, and even love. That explained why the world in which you found yourself had the appearance of a created thing. Not just orderly, law-bound, and filled with complex systems necessary for human life, but also vivid and beautiful and awesome in a way that resembles and yet exceeds the human capacity for art. Love it. So this is, this is you know, non-rational 
but I think most people can experience it and do. And he talks about that. He says, finally, the common religious assumption that humans are material creatures connected to a supernatural plane explained why your world contained so many signs of higher order of reality. The incredible variety of experiences described as mystical or numinous, unsettling or terrifying, are just really, really weird. Ranging from baseline feelings of oneness and universal love to strange happenings at the threshold of death, to encounters with gods and demons, ghosts and fairies that are never fully understood, but experienced. And I uh, want to point out the, the phenomena that we see in the integral world of people having experiences with aliens. Amazing thing. Not me, but you know, hey, all good. So, Okay, so, so he's having, you know, he's doing this exercise where you think of yourself in this pre-modern -pre way. And then it, he says, got all that? Good. Now, consider the possibility that in our own allegedly disenchanted era, the one after Galileo, Copernicus, Darwin, Einstein, consider that all of this is still true all of the non-rational stuff, still true, love it. So then he goes on and he talks about the scientific progress and so forth. Interestingly enough, he talks about neuroscience. He has his explanations for how science um, uh, can, can be a, a portal to a belief in God. But to me, he misses the big one, which is evolution itself and that We've had 13.8 billion years of something coming out of nothing, <laughs> you know, more coming out of less. It's observable. Science shows it to us from, you know, the vantage point of 13.8 billion years. And that a contemplation of that is a religious experience pretty reliably, it seems to me. But I'm going to go with Ross because I think he's, you know, onto something and certainly moving the ball. So I'm going to just... Um, bounce over here. So again, he's talking to New York Times readers, and he says, the disenchantment of the modern world is a myth of the intelligentsia. In reality, it never happened. Instead, through the whole multi-century multi process of secularization, the decline of religion's political power and cultural prestige, People kept right on having near-death experiences and demonic visitations and wild divine encounters. They just lost the religious structures through which these experiences used to be interpreted. And that is, um, I think, right on and, and has a good understanding of sort of the evolution of things. You know, modernity has no room for God or spirit. It doesn't, it's not supposed to, it's supposed to deconstruct that, but um, it's still there. And Integral's job is to reintegrate the whole spiral. So we wanna be friendly and receptive to it. And he points out some experiences of that and examples of all that. And he ends with Barbara Ehrenreich's book that he said, I think you should read 
called Living with a Wild God. This is a contemporary memoir by an inveterate skeptic of organized religion, which describes mystical experiences that came to her unbidden with a biblical mix of awe, terror, and mystery. And then he quotes her, Barbara Ehrenreich, in the book. She says, one reason for the terrible wordlessness, I'll start over. One reason for the terrible wordlessness of the experience is that you cannot observe fire really closely without becoming part of it. And that is one of the best explanations of, you know, moving through that veil of form and emptiness, really. Whew, that's really good. You cannot observe fire really closely without becoming a part of it. So he goes on and he says, so he's talked about all these things that people experience. He says, if your claim is just that religious experience is mostly a misinterpretation, it's a, still a substantial concession to acknowledge that it persists through ages of reason, as well as ages, age, ages of faith, and endures even with cultural and medical and scientific authorities discount or dismiss it. He says, take just one example, the case of near-death experiences, which were culturally submerged phenomena, which were a culturally submerged phenomenon until Raymond A. Moody started compelling testimony in the late 1960s, started compiling testimony in the late 1960s. After decades of research, we know such experiences are commonplace and surprisingly consistent in certain features. Not just the tunnels and bright lights and encounters with dead relatives, but also the psychological aftermath, marked by a shift towards greater selflessness, spirituality, and cosmic optimism. Yay, love it. So you go Ross. Um, and he goes on, and again, I, I don't, I'm not that, I don't find his arguments that compelling when compared to the evolutionary one itself, but maybe I'm just, you know, overthinking it. Anyway, I, I do want to read the end. Let's see what he says here. Okay, yeah, this is good. He says, um, For finite and suffering creatures, religious belief offers important kinds of hope and consolation, but unbelief has its own comforts. <laughs> I love this. Unbelief has its own comforts. It takes a whole vast zone of ideas and arguments, practices and demands, supernatural perils and metaphysical complexities and whispers, well, at least you don't have to spend time thinking about that. That's, a, that's true of a lot of, of me for decades. I don't have to think about that at least. That modernity freed me from that. And then he goes on, this is the last paragraph. But actually, you do. So if you are standing uncertainly on the threshold of whatever faith traditions you feel closest to, you don't have to heed the inner voice insisting that it's necessarily more reasonable and sensible and modern to take a step backward. You can recognize instead that reality is probably not as materialism describes it. 
and take up the obligation of a serious human being preparing for life and death alike to move forward, to step through. How about that? Yep. So um, I really appreciate that from him. And, um, and I think it's significant that they publish it. And I think that will make an impact and move the ball into integral territory. All right, so um, I guess I'd make one last observation. And that is that uh, Ross Douthit has a theistic orientation. And some people do and some people don't. And we have both of those in the integral world. We have the emptiness people and we have the God people. And that's, I, I, I don't know which one I identify with or like better. I do think that there is an integration of the two. And I think that recognition, you know, just good old basic integral theory of seeing the first, second and third person dimensions of reality is really useful and that we and that all of those are evol evolving so we have a first person spirit first spirit in first person which is my own consciousness and uh, upon careful examination i realize that it is empty of all concepts and that there's you know it's as big as the whole shebang so that's a practice i can work with Number two, that there is a spirit of God, spirit in second person, which is divine, which is an, a divine other that I can relate to and that I can relate to them as God. I can relate to them as guides. I can relate to them as demons. There's all, you know, the second person is vast and scary in many ways. You know, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So there's that I want to work with. And I want to see that that's an evolving system. And then uh, God in third person, which is, is the world of form. You know, it's, it's this creation that is 13.8 billion years old and continues to evolve in technologically and all sorts of systems and complexity. And there's God there too, or there's religion there too. <laughs> so anyway, that's my story. And um, I appreciate you listening and see you next week. Uh, I did have one uh, listener write to me and say, you've got a comment on the story of the March of the Karens, which is, it was a, I, I saw the headline, I haven't read it. So if you're interested in uh, a cultural critique, and, and this reader was incensed by it, um, that it was racist, that it was a new level of, um, you know, taking, take, uh, uh, going after white people which the New York Times is entertaining that. It, it, it is, that is, that is a flavor of the new culture. <laughs> and um, so read it if you will, and I will too, and I'll comment on it next week. Okay, take care people, see you next time. Uh, you can find all my stuff in dailyevolver.com uh, or Daily Evolver YouTube. And this is gonna go on post-progressive post. Uh, it's all part of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. There's a lot going on, but we're all just doing our thing and, uh, you know, being lived by emergence, my new religion, my not so new religion. Okay. Take care. <laughs>